Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Grief can arrive in an instant, turning an ordinary summer day into one of shock and heartbreak. Back in July of 2011, Judith Finneran's husband, Ralph, headed out for a bike ride. As he was cycling past the GM plant, a car drifted to the right, hitting and killing him. Grief and anger can also be pretty close companions. We might be angry at the universe or at medical professionals who weren't able to save the person. Sometimes we get angry at ourselves for what we did and didn't do or say. And some of us even get angry at the person who died. Most of the time, though, there isn't a particular person to blame for the death. It's just our devastation looking for a place to land. In Judith's case, though, there was a person, a young man named Brett, who in a moment of distraction during his commute to work, ended the life of her beloved husband and the father to her children. How does knowing someone really was responsible for the death affect our grief? And what's it like to wrestle with anger and blame while also trying to figure out how to honor the person you love and miss? Judith took that anger and blame and all the other aspects of grief and channeled them into two creative projects. She wrote her first book called Remember His Name, and she ended up going to film school where she created a documentary called Ghost Bike. It chronicles her grief and also her attempts to reach out to Brett, the man who hit and killed her husband, and give him a chance to share his side of what happened that day. Judith, thank you so much for being on Grief Out Loud today. Thank you for having me. I know we're going to talk a lot about the documentary that you created and the book you wrote and kind of your whole process with grief. But can we start with talking a little bit about Ralph? What was he like? What kind of husband and father was he? Oh, I would love to talk about my Ralph. Yep. I used to call him Ralphie, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Ralph or Ralpher. He was the gentlest, most thoughtful, loving soul, I swear. He, He loved me and the children beyond words. There's, I can't even describe to you, family things, bike riding, skiing, you know, doing things together as a family that we just loved. He worked hard. He was actually working three part-time jobs when this crash happened and just, you know, enjoying life. He was riding his bike and and he was actually training for um, triathlons and he loved it and he loved us. He used to say, greet me every morning. I'd come down the stairs and he'd say, good morning, beautiful. And he'd have a cup of coffee. So I really miss that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just that ever-present love and support. Yes, yes. You know, Ralph died in 2011. So we're in 2019 now. How would you describe your grief when he first died versus how would you describe your grief today? Well, when it first happened, it was, of course, just an absolute shock. You know, I got, 
I got home from my job and he was usually home. I knew something was strange because the door wasn't open. The dog is usually standing there to greet me. But I knew he rode his bike to work that day. So I was like, oh, maybe, you know, it was starting to rain a little bit. I'm like, maybe he was late and he's going to call and wants me to pick him up. And um, I walked in the house and I no sooner was in there a couple minutes and the phone rang. And I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sure that's Ralph and he wants me to pick him up. And it wasn't. It was the hospital. And from that point on, after what they said to me, which was unheard of, really, because I was by myself. They said, he's unresponsive and bleeding from his head. Are you going to come here? And all I remember is just going into a total, total state of shock, you know, numbness, overwhelmed, sadness and pain so deep. Again, there are no words to describe it. You know, that feeling lasted for, I want to say, about three years. I mean, it got easier, you know, as the months went by and the years went by. But basically, I didn't feel back to, in quotes, normal till about three years. Yeah, I love that you put normal in quotes because it seems like we don't ever go back to how we were before. We just adapt to this new experience. Right, exactly. It'll be eight years this July 27th. I'm definitely more present. I can feel like I'm more in the now moments, creating lots of new memories with new friends and a lot of traveling. You know, I still have those moments. So, I mean, I think the hardest parts are birthdays, anniversaries. I call it the angelversary, you know, the day he passed. I always try to do something special on those days, whether it's putting a message out on Facebook to honor him and remember him or just something a little more personal and private. And I've been putting up a ghost bike, which is a white bike painted that you put up where the person was hit and killed to memorialize them and remember them, but also to keep drivers aware that there's bicyclists out there. So every spring, since I'm in Michigan and we you know, get a lot of snow, I put it up about April and I take it down every November. I never realized that some people will, you know, put the the bike up and then take it down and put it back up because in Portland, the weather being what it was, the bikes stay up year round. And what's it like as a ritual each year to put the bike up and take it back down? It's interesting you ask that because it's reaching a point where at the eight eight year mark where I kind of don't want to do it anymore. It's not anything negative. It's just that I'm reaching a point where maybe I just don't feel it's necessary for me to do anymore. A lot of the people in the community look forward to it, though, and they actually ask me if they don't see it. They're they're asking me, where'd the ghost bike go? So that means a lot to me. And I would love to have something, you know, a little more permanent there which Mm. I have thought about checking into with the, you know, county and the community. But it's it's getting kind of hard to continue to put it up, continue to take it down. But I think that's as my grief process is changing, I maybe don't need to do that anymore. I, I think I need to do something different. 
It's such a great point that what maybe feels helpful and comforting and necessary at one point in our grief, a ritual that we create or a tradition to stay open to the fact that those things might change and what we need might change. And, and I think some, yeah, for some people, they can feel the, the pressure or the responsibility to continue on with what felt good in year one. And then in year eight, like, oh, I need to look at what else is going to really meet my needs in this moment. Right. Exactly. And then Ghost Bike is the title of the documentary that you created about Ralph and, and his death and your process. What was, can you talk a little bit about the film and the kind of what the process of creating it, how that affected you? Well, it was interesting. Uh, you know, I was so numbed out that first year and I had already had plans that October to come out. I'm actually in Sedona, Arizona right now, which is one of my favorite places and is a very healing place and was for me. And I had plans to come here in October. So that was like 10 weeks after Ralph was killed. And I stayed with a friend who I had met a few years previous. And she said, we have a film school, Jude. Why don't you go check it out? And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Why not? And I went and I checked out that film school. And a year later, I was attending that film school for 10 months. And honestly, it was one of those things where it wasn't a dream of mine ever to make a film. It wasn't on my bucket list. It was just, it felt right. Mm -hmm. This is the time. This is the right thing to do. And it's going to help you. I always wanted to live in Sedona. And I went, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do this right now. And so as we were being taught and we had to pick a subject, you know, I'm like, I love to do a film on a ghost bike. And what happened to Ralph? You know, I, I did have to ask myself, what are you doing? And I realized as I'm working on the film, I would be grieving anyway, no matter what, whether I'm making a film or I was sitting back home in Michigan, I'm still going to be grieving. So I might as well make a film out of it. I might as well be creative and learn something new and help others. You know, I've been to many film festivals and People appreciate it and they love it and it's touched their heart. So, and it, and it's getting the message out. I've had a lot of people say, you know, after watching your film, I'm putting my cell phone down. I'm not driving distracted. I'm a lot more conscious driver. You know, it was meant to be as far as helping in my healing process. Living out here for 10 months was, was an absolute dream come true. Yeah, the film is such a, like a raw look into your grief, but then also that inspiration directive reminder to everyone of how these split second decisions while you're driving, like what the consequences of those can be. I was, I was really in awe of your ability to, to bring those two elements together. Yeah. And a big part of the film is your process of trying to reach out to the man who was driving the car that hit and killed your husband. What, what was that like to try to connect with him and that whole experience? It was nerve wracking to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, I was really nervous. You know, I had met him once at the courthouse cause he had, I don't know how many different court hearings that I had to go to the first time. I remember I was sitting in this little room 
off of the main hallway of the courthouse. And I said, I, you know, I haven't seen the young man yet. I'm looking at every young man that's out in the hallway. I said, who, who is the person that hit my Ralph? And then finally, somebody was able to point him out. You know, he was just in his 20s. He was with his mom and dad. And it, it kind of, you know, I kept calling him a killer because I was so angry and mm. just so upset. I was able to get some compassion for him that day and actually talk to him and realize, you know, this is a, a kid. I mean, this is a 20-something with his mom and dad. And then later during during the making of the film, you know, I didn't know if he would answer my phone calls. I didn't know if he would respond. In the film, you see that he did he did call me back, which was absolutely amazing. The film crew just happened to be at my house that day, which is also amazing that none of that was planned. He never did meet up with me. We met due to the court thing. We actually met at a Starbucks because he was supposed to. He's supposed to be paying me what they call restitution. Mm. And he did really well for like two years. And then he he hasn't paid anything since. And so that's something I think about daily. Nah, nah I don't want to say daily. Often. Think about it often. And for my own grief process, sometimes, you know, I can just get really angry and say, yeah, I need to get an attorney and chase this guy down again. But. It's really an ongoing process of sort of sorting through that complicated response and all the feelings that come along with with him. As as you mentioned, like you see his face, there's some growth of compassion or ac ability to access that, but then also tacking back to those times of anger and rage and feeling like you're you're due something. Yes, exactly, and that continues. I mean, eight years later, I can. I can get in that place for sure. You know, my daughter's getting married this year, the end of the year in December, and I'm so happy for her, of course. I'm so excited, and it's going to be wonderful. Along with that comes the thought that Ralph should be here. Mm -hmm. He should be here. And then the anger and rage toward Brett comes up. Yeah, like each new milestone or moment of, of note in your family's life. Right. Exactly. Forgiveness is one of those terms that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And how, what does forgiveness mean to you? Like, what does it feel like when you have glimpses of it? Honestly, it feels great when I can really let myself feel it and really, really let go and release, you know, release that person. Because what I realize and others have helped me realize is. You know, I don't want to carry that anger and bitterness around. I want to live my life in, you know, in joy and happiness as much as I can. So letting go and releasing him is forgiving him to me. And someone else told me this, which has really helped me a lot. They said, Jude, it, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a snap of a finger. It's a process. Here I am eight years later, it's still a process because, you know, the depth of emotion that you have with a young man who, you know, not only hit and killed your husband, but now he's not doing what the court ordered him to do. 
it's a challenge. It's a challenge to continue to forgive. Yeah, it seems so key, that idea that forgiveness is really for you. It's not something you're doing for him. Right, exactly. And if I can keep that straight, I'm good. You know, I feel good. I just because when you when you hang on to not forgiving, it's such a burden and such a heavy, yucky feeling. I I I don't want to hang on to that. Judith, you mentioned that your friend saying, you know, that forgiveness doesn't happen overnight, that it's a process. What are some other elements along the way that you've found to be helpful? Oh wow. I Honestly, I've been so blessed. When it first happened, I was going to a gym three mornings a week, which, you know, something we all do off and on, right? <laughs> like, like I had gone and then not gone. And just at the time Ralph was killed, I happened to be going three mornings a week. Every Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning, I was off to the gym. And in the afternoon, just hopefully and usually hanging with some friends. And I started going to a Bible study, which for people who know me, that that isn't my cup of tea at all. But what I realized is I needed to have something to do every day. Mm. I had my Monday, Wednesday, Friday taken now. My Tuesday was Bible study. And then Sunday I went to church. So my only day that was the toughest day ever was Saturdays. Saturdays and Saturday nights were so hard because a lot of my friends had plans. You know, I'm not a couple anymore. A lot of people, you know, were doing things with their husband or wife. And I remember very many Saturday nights just grieving and sobbing so deeply in my family room with my dog. And, you know, but I was good the next day. As long as I knew I could connect with people in some way, It, I think it gave me hope and it gave me peace. I needed that so badly. And I, I don't, you know, I don't think you can describe to anyone the depth of the loneliness that you feel, even if you're in a room full of people, because you've lost that person who gave you that comfort, who gave you that love, who you were so connected to. It's almost impossible to articulate that absence of your person, like your main person. Yep. Yep. And then a pastor at the church I was going to at the time, and this meant a lot to me, and I share this with a lot of other people. She said, Judith, grieve well. You deserve it. And so does Ralph. Mm -hmm. Even saying that to you right now just frees me up because our society does try to tell you, well, just get back up and get on with your life. And it's like, grieve well. Thank you. Thank you. Permission, you mm. know, to grieve well and to feel your feelings. And then uh, up here in Sedona or down here in Sedona, I talked to the spiritual leader here and he, he also said some really awesome words that helped me, which were let his body go and take his spirit in. And those two comments, those two quotes, I write down often and I remember often because it gives me peace and it gives me healing. Mm. Well, so powerful, that idea of grieving well, because in some sense, you, one person might hear that and think like, get it right or 
do a good job. But for you, it was really yes. that invitation of grieve, whatever that ends up looking like for you, but you deserve the space to do that. Yes, exactly. And so important. Well, Judith, I so appreciate you spending time on the show today talking with us about Ralph and what an amazing person he was and your process through the many layers of anger and rage and forgiveness and jumping back around to all three of those points throughout the last eight years. Thank you so much. I It is healing to me even to this day to be able to share my story. And listeners, I really want to make sure you have a chance to watch Ghost Bike, Judith's documentary film, which is really powerful. Make sure you have some tissues nearby or maybe uh, a cat video at the ready to take a little break from it. So I'll link to that in our show notes. And I'll also link to the book, Remember His Name as well in the show notes. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our show as well. If you're new to Grief Out Loud, you can find all of our past episodes on our website or Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, you know, wherever you get the show. And if you have an idea for a topic or a guest, please reach out to us at help at So thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.